Welcome to season two of The Reflection. We started this series in March 2020 after the announcement of the lockdown and COVID-19 began to change the world. For 20 weeks, academics, activists and journalists joined us to discuss everything from the UK government's mishandling of the pandemic, the growth of conspiracies, Black Lives Matter and what it was like to bear witness to the growth of existing local and global inequalities. For this season, our guests will be reflecting on the political climate of the past year and we'll be talking to authors who have released books in 2020 concerning matters of race and class. This is a trigger warning. This episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to the final episode of Surviving Society's Reflection Series. Is it the final one? It's the final one today wow. okay. and we are bringing in the big guns. Considering like what we're going to talk about. Oh, that's a bit, pun that's intended. A, Pun intended. Pun not intended. <laughs> In the studio today, legendary Surviving Society alumni David Waring, who is a teaching fellow in international relations at University of Southampton. David specialises in UK foreign relations in the Middle East. He is author of Anglo-Arabia and he has written for The Guardian, The New York Times, Navarra and appeared on Sky News and BBC News. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> Me and Tisa were talking before you arrived, David, about how much your episode last year kind of moved us. And I would strongly recommend listeners to go back to our main Survive Society episode with David from last summer because David's specialisms, yeah, on UK foreign relations in the Middle East and particular the UK's relationship with Saudi Arabia, just so important in terms of democratising knowledge about the madness that is UK foreign policy. Now, what I mean by that is I think that there's some really straightforward things that David shares in his scholarship that people need to know about in terms of how messed up our relationship is with parts of the Middle East and how integral Britain is to mass death, genocide like that in Yemen, etc. And we were just sort of saying how much our conversation with David, yeah, really stood out for us last summer. Where David's podcast came into its own, I think for the everyday man on the street. That, or woman, or, or non binary person. Basically. <laughs> so how, that, how confusing that place is, how, so at one minute we, so for example, the British support Saudis, but don't support Iran or Iraq or Syria or the Yemen. So all the, how contradictory and how messy it seems. So you're kind of, the podcast kind of uh, untangled it all, really. Yep. Yeah, I'm glad I was able to do that. It, th th these are subjects that are really not discussed, even where they really should be discussed, like on on the left, in the media, in academia. I don't know if we'll have the chance to go back over it, but it's on the main podcast that we did before, this war in Yemen that's been going on for the past six years now, and Britain playing a leading role in sustaining the Saudi bombing of Yemen which has killed thousands of people. Saudi blockade of Yemen, which has caused this humanitarian disaster, which has led to the deaths of thousands of people, infant children, 85,000 infant children, died of starvation and preventable disease as a result of this humanitarian disaster, which is man-made as a result of this war, which the British are sustaining through, through sustaining the portion of the Saudi Air Force that's British jets. I mean, this is really consequential, <laughs> to put it mildly. It's the most consequential aspect of British foreign policy today. You don't see it on the front pages, you don't see it in the news, there's virtually no scholarship about it. Six years in, there's me and maybe two other people who've written substantively on it in the whole of British academia. And trying to get that out there is an ongoing effort. And the ability to talk about it with you guys at length 
It's something I, you know, I really, really value that. And the extent to which that's connected to race, I think, is really important because how else do you explain this collective, beyond collective, this almost structural indifference to Yemeni life? Like we can, we can be complicit in the deaths of thousands of people over several years, and we don't even discuss it. So yeah, I was glad to be able to come come on and talk about that and talk about it in those terms as well. It's really powerful, and I think just going back to what you said, T, about kind of the everyday person understanding. I don't even call it politics, but these structured violences and murders that Britain uh, play a role in, I feel like they benefit from how kind of confusing it is. They benefit from that and they're able to kind of mask their role in that kind of within the everyday kind of uh, media domain. What makes it more confusing is when you heap upon it the kind of war and ter- war and terror. Mm. So, Ooh, nice segue. Look at you. I try, best. I try my best, you know, you get me. I try my best. Um, but under that kind of ages, some Middle Eastern people are okay and some are not. Mm-hmm. And it, it all gets kind of confusing. So that's, And that's racialized, yeah, of course. Yeah, racialized. So were some of the nine um, boys, some, were some of them were Saudi? Were some of Many of them were Saudi. Saudi, yeah. yeah. But yeah, we support them. But yeah. there was no kind of reprisals like there were in Afghanistan and in Iraq. For every person who sees it, it's very confusing. How people in the Middle East are racialized, I think is really, within Western discourse, I think is really, it's a really interesting case study for anyone interested in race as a, you know... as a Changing course, category, yeah. Yeah, as a system of social ordering, which is always fluid, um, which has always got these gradations and these different sort of aspects to it. I think the Middle East is such an interesting case study in the way different groups within the wider body that we call, you know, Arab people or Muslims or the you know, Arab majority world, different groups within it, different people within it in different places in the system can be racialized slightly differently depending on, you know, what suits Western power ultimately. Mm. I don't want to make out like there's this really conscious con- conspiracy <laughs> to frame this discourse, but mm-hmm. it's, it, it's striking, isn't it, how often the discourse in really detailed and specific ways just reflects the needs of power. You know, the violence of a opponent of British power can be attributed to in some way their sort of backwardness, their fanaticism, their you know, their their failure to, to, to conform to modernity. And the violence of someone from not just the same region but the same country, if they're a monarch who we support and who aligns themselves with British power and British strategic interests, suddenly they're something else. You know, they can be in the paper we talked about last time, I talked about the way these monarchs are often described as reformers. So yeah, they sit within this context of this backward country where you know they're, they're mired in their own traditions and they've never attained Western modernity, quote unquote. But this one guy, he's on the liberal end of that spectrum and he's trying to reform his backward society and we should support him. Mm-hmm. So it, just those details of how these people are racialized and the way that reflects the interests, I think is, you know, it, it's... It's gruesome and fascinating simultaneously from that kind of point of view. British leaders are sociopaths. <laughs> they are, aren't they? I just can't believe they're able to consistently present this kind of exceptionalism in what they choose or how they choose to conduct themselves in with foreign affairs and foreign relations and how they're able to other groups and not kind of look at themselves. The steps of the game. Everyone knows the steps of the game. Even people who are on the other side, they understand the game. There is a complicity on the other side too. So like the people who are the elite on the other side who benefit from this, they understand the game. And what's quite interesting now 
is looking at as Afghanistan as that case study. As there's a vacuum now and people and they start to try to build a new state from this, they're making overtures to the West and how what they what they're willing to do and what they're w- not willing to do. And so you're seeing again this a realignment. The West are the hegemonic power, right? They're not going nowhere as yet. This point about people on the other side understanding how to, how it works. There's something really interesting in that. In in that article we talked about before, I talked about that that, that thing about the reforming monarch mm-hmm. who lives within his backward society but is doing his best, so we must support him, you know, which which is a great way of externalising the explanation for authoritarianism in the Middle East onto the quote-unquote culture that's part of the racialization. because just, you know, just, just to state this briefly for your, for your listeners... The reason there's authoritarianism in the Middle East is not because of the culture of the peoples of the region. It's because of a collusion between the West and the regional elites. Mm -hmm. So the West is deeply implicated in it. Throughout the last hundred years, Western powers have been picking winners in the process. You know, it's a process of social contestation that goes on everywhere. Britain's a democracy because of a process of social contestation, not because white people are inherently Democrats. There's a struggle between British conservatives and British radicals. And radicals, to the extent that they won out, was able to create a democratic system in this country. And the same struggles were going on in the, in the Middle East. But the conservatives won, or have, have been winning so far. Why? Because they've had a lot of help from the British and the Americans and the French. So the reason there's authoritarianism in the region is because of that collusion, and because of Britain effectively rigging the game or tilting the playing field in the, in the, in the interests of the elites that they support. Now, what's interesting, so I go back to the point you were making about how people on the other side of the game understand it. These people are collaborators of imperialism, mm-hmm. collaborators of Western power, right? And I think to a degree there's an understanding of how that racialization works in their favour. Because you often hear, this thing about the reforming monarch, you often hear, these monarchs do it themselves. They will say... You have to understand we have a different set of values from you and we're doing our best to reform our society, but we can only go so far, you know. They know how to pitch their case to the West, you know, in the in the language of the in the racist language of the West. They talk to they have consultants coming over, explaining to them, you know, this is what the sort of PR strategy you should, you should adopt, this is where you should present yourself in the West. And I don't have the transcripts of the meetings, but I'll bet you anything these consultants are saying to them just say you're working in a very conservative context and just say that you're doing your best to reform. So that self-orientalising, that self racialization I think is a really important aspect of it. I didn't get to explore it in the paper. No, that's sick. David, you're a really good teacher, yeah. isn't you? Yeah. I, like, you're really, like, as in just how you're able to make those connections, I think it's just really powerful. I'm going to give you a mic drop for that. <laughs> that's good. Just for the purpose of timing and what we're going to talk about, the time of recording, it's the end of September. The last few weeks of Surviving Society have been, um, we had a spotlight episode where we had some, we had Naz, Nadia and Wakas talk about um, their reflections as British Muslims uh, in 20 years on from um, 9-11 and the war on terror. Yeah, and then Tiso and I kind of did an anecdotal episode where we kind of spoke about our own kind of observations of increased Islamophobia in Britain over the past year and the sort of change in nature of the West as well. To be clear, it's the end of September. Um, it's been 20 years since 9-11, but also America or the USA have removed 
their troops from Afghanistan. And I guess one of the really good things about having David on is he's a specialist in the Middle East, but also it does connect to these these topics we've been talking about in terms of Britain's foreign policies and relationships within the Middle East. So, David, when they kind of announced, I know it's been sort of in the, they said that they were going to leave. But for you, like as a scholar, as an academic, as someone that's really interested, but also tries to shine a light on these matters... What were your thoughts in that week? Like, so we're we like, we're must be four weeks in mm-hmm. now following the leave. Like, what did you think? In the 1980s, 79 onwards into the 80s, the Soviets intervened in Afghanistan, invaded Afghanistan to prop up an allied regime there and were driven out by an insurgency. So the Americans effectively have gone through the same experience. They've tried to impose a sort of client regime in, in, in Afghanistan. And they've been driven out by an insurgency. Now, when the Soviets were were driven out, people thought the client regime would crumble shortly after. And it took about two years for that client regime to fall apart without Soviet support. The American client regime didn't fall apart in two years. It fell apart in days. And, you know, this stunning reversal, and it showed how little the Americans had achieved. Now, that set off this wave of... I want to call it hysteria, and I'm talking about people in the political class, I'm talking about politicians in the media. It sparked genuine concern amongst ordinary people who, in Britain who clearly don't want to see anyone living under the Taliban, because the Taliban are horrific in, in multiple ways, and specifically concerned about women in Afghanistan. But when I talk about hysteria and, and, and tantrums and the sort of outpourings of indignation that I don't frankly have respect for or can take seriously, I'm not talking about the popular reaction, I'm talking about people in Westminster and Fleet Street. As someone who has spent years studying Britain's relationship with Saudi Arabia, I find it impossible to take seriously the idea that British politicians are suddenly... Give a shit. ...about women's rights... You serious? Mm. Literally, the most misogynistic regime in the world is their closest ally in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, where women who have campaigned for the right to drive, the right to drive cars, have been not just jailed but you know tortured, sexually assaulted in prison. While that same regime that's doing that has been praised by British leaders for advancing women's rights, you know. Um, and while you know British politicians have either been praising that regime or arming that regime or just being silent about it, not saying much about it, and now in the context of Afghanistan, they want to talk about the rights of Afghan women and how they commit they are to that. And there was this whole performance in mid-August about this 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 professed concern for the fate of Afghan women, this professed concern at the loss of democracy in Afghanistan, this professed concern about. Beyond that, and this is what it was really about, about the loss of Western power. And, you know, we're we're, we're a force for good in the world. We go out there and try and spread our values, but we've lost our confidence somehow. And now we've lost heart and we're pulling away from these, um, these important tasks that we should be committed to, which is raising up the backward peoples of the world. And it's just... It's hard to penetrate a discourse that's so detached from reality. But like, I don't know what I'd have done if I'd had a seat in Parliament and I'd stood up and had to talk. How do you even talk to that? Yeah, how do you, it's, it's a different language, isn't it? It's a completely different um, 
conceptualization. The first few weeks when it happened, mm. there was definitely that outpouring. But as the situation matured and it sunk in, especially with America seeing itself as taking the role, to stepping back. Yeah, there is a a sense in the West that this this moralizing mission that they've been on, maybe it's not good. Maybe it hasn't worked, mm. and so hence you have a shift in policy and a shift to focus on China. So we're almost going to kind of like a Cold War redux, basically. Yeah. With China being the centre of attention, and it's not about a moralising mission to spread our values anymore. It's about stopping their values. Yeah. So there's two things there. I think one is we shouldn't always think of popular anti-war sentiment as being necessarily our kind of anti-war sentiment. Often it's a kind of, well, I don't care about people in the rest of the world. With us, it's. We do, and we don't want to see them invaded and conquered by Western powers who don't have their best interests at heart, and we don't buy into this liberal rhetoric of the civilising mission or you know humanitarian intervention or any of that stuff. But a lot of people who oppose interventions in the mid- in the Middle East or in Afghanistan, they just don't care about people, mm. you know, and um, they don't respond to it on that basis. And another thing is that you'll get this kind of, well, we did our best, but we're working with people who don't have the right culture, these mm. people. And, and the way it's expressed is there's no history of democracy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what does that mean? Well, did Britain have a history of democracy before it had democracy? Who has a history of democracy before they have it? What they mean is it's just not in their nature, these people. We can't we can't turn them into people like us, civilised people like us. And there's all these euphemisms in the discourse for that. So those were two, and in, in terms of the way people have just... You know, that discourse has moved on, as you say. I think a lot of it has to do with that. Well, you know, screw them anyway. You know, we did our best, but, you know, we're working with faulty material, so we couldn't, <laughs> you know. And then but when you go on to China, the, the, there's a racialized aspect there. If you look at, you know, yeah, it's a strategic Cold War of a superpower, but it's also sometimes the way it's framed in terms of we need to corral the democracies to stand up against the authoritarians. I mean, you know, the, the the way international relations is racialized often, it's like that. We're the democracies. They're the authoritarians. As if it's, they're inherently authoritarian, we're inherently democratic. Like, you're going to have to ditch a lot of your allies if you want to make an alliance of democracies. You know? I was saying to Shanta earlier, with the kind of withdrawal, that 20-year period raises a lot of questions around things like Guantanamo Bay, yeah. Bagram Prison, yeah. Afghanistan, and the stuff that happened there. Yeah. So there's been, so far... It's been silent. Listen, if we want to have a real discussion about what happened, you you start getting into precisely that stuff. Like, the way it was portrayed in, in, in that whole discourse in the in, in middle of August and these, these stupid debates in Parliament and in the news and what have you, it was almost as though, well, we went in there and did wondrous things and then suddenly Biden left for no reason, probably because he lost his nerve or something, you know. But the reality was that... The reason they lost Afghanistan was because they were so brutal in the way they enforced their power within that country. And effectively, the Taliban were able to come back because they were the alternative to the brutality of the Americans and their allies. And then Gopal is the, is the key guy here is the, in terms of people who've written about it. It's Washington Post um, journalist who's written a fantastic book about Afghanistan. And then Gopal. One of the things he says was that the Taliban were beaten within, you know, Weeks, so late two thousand and one. Americans, inv- Americans, and British invaded in October two thousand and one. By November, it's done, and the Taliban are just effectively begging for mercy, just like we we surrender. Can we just have a basic amnesty? We'll go off, and you know we won't bother you again. 
and the Americans' attitude, because there was so much hubris at the time, the Americans thought they could do anything. And they were like, no, we don't want you to surrender. We're going to hunt down every last one of you and finish you off. And so with the Taliban effectively scattered and gone, the Americans carried on as if there was a war to be fought. And they would be kicking down the doors of people's homes, shipping people off to Guantanamo, or, or, or you know, these other bases in, in Afghanistan. The listeners might know about an episode in the Iraq War where it was revealed that one of Saddam Hussein's old prisons was being used by the Americans. Abu Ghraib, wasn't it? Abu Ghraib, to torture people. Not just to torture people, but to torture people in a specifically racialized way in that they believed that they, if they humiliated Arab men, that that would you yeah. know, get under the skin of Arab men and their innate conservatism. So it was all sexualized the way they'd humiliate them and stuff so like that. that. That's, I was reading, reading something this morning about background prison. So one of the, the methods of torture was to make the wardens go down in bikinis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And make them yeah. watch make them watch porn. But they, obviously these guys, the, the guy was saying, he said he felt uncomfortable. But it's playing on those, those racial those racial overtones of they're naturally conservative. It's just it's so fine tuned. It's fine tuned. It's cruelty so is fine tuned yeah. to, to racism. You know, mm-hmm. they they they're this conceptualization of people in that part of the world, the men in particular, mm-hmm. that when when we humiliate them, torture them, mistreat them, we have to tailor it to our racialized view of what they're like. Mm-hmm. Now that happened in Abu Ghraib and everyone was, you know, up in arms about it for like five minutes. And they then put it down to us, bad apples, you know, but that's not what we're really like. No, that was constant. And what Alan Gopal says, he said there were dozens of Abu Ghraibs, or many Abu I can't remember the exact term he used, but he said there was many Abu Ghraibs in Afghanistan. So people were constantly being sent off to these places to be tortured. Um, also, the Americans' allies, you have to remember the people the Taliban beat to take over Afghanistan in the mid-90s were as bad as the Taliban. You know, these groups were all as bad as each other. And those were the people the Americans backed from 2001 onwards. So, you know, the people they were backing were also people who were carrying out all these horrible abuses. And people in Afghanistan, you know, the, the point that Gopal makes is that in the, in the cities, the Americans and the British were able to sort of develop kind of, you know, the, the societies there were a bit more liberal. I mean, this is often the case anyway, cities are more liberal than, 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 than the rural areas. In the rural areas, people just experienced violence. They didn't experience this liberation that people keep talking about. They experienced just constant violence. And eventually, people were just like, look, if we have to choose, the tar- if the Taliban can beat these people and drive them out, and at least we won't be at war, well, that would be something. So we'll acquiesce in it. We don't love either of them, but we'll acquiesce in the Taliban coming back if it means kicking these people out and having peace. So all this stuff about we went there to do our best, civilized, civilizing mission, make the country better. We lost, all the British and Americans lost because they were so horrible to the people of the country. It's just so overwhelming, but equally, like, listeners will know that I'm very comfortable in talking about um, what I don't know and the general unknowing of social life. But one of the things that I think I've definitely learned over the past few years is how brutal Britain and the US in particular were. Um, or have always been in the Middle East. I watched, it's like like all documentaries are flawed in their own ways, but um, I watched that. Netflix has, has done like an eight-part documentary on the war, 9-11 and the war on terror, and oh. there's there's like three episodes. that It starts obviously with 9-11 and then goes into all the US foreign policy in particular, but there's a couple of episodes which focus on 
how brutal and how violent the US soldiers were to Afghan Afghani people and like they've got videos images like and I was just so kind of taken aback by it again like it's a Netflix documentary so it's very flawed but like I think that there are a lot of people still that don't really understand like how bad that was and I think that what the conversation that you guys have just had there is just really important it's hard to listen to but it's just really important that we keep reminding um, everyone about our role there and what we did there and the continued violence but if if you remember just after 9-11 there was debates about should torture be okay yeah yeah, that's one of the episodes about that as well and like there was loads of like lawyers and stuff that were like no but then the government were like, yeah. yeah. So uh, if you remember like Donald Rumsfeld and I think a few others, the Hawks were kind of arguing that there, there's a case to be made. Mm-hmm. Like if these people, not even damage writing, just have the their kind of temerity to kind of attack Western Western buildings mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. attack us, torture is okay. And then, then that kind of bled into the kind of ideas of rendition. When I was looking at that article this morning about uh, background prison, uh, one of the inmates was saying most of the people there, I think he said about maybe 75%, were renditionees. So people from other countries who've been snatched up from a different country and because of their laws taken to Afghanistan or a judicial black spot where they can't, there's no jurisdiction and tortured for evidence. And he said like, there's one guy, he said he was there for six years, six years. And so you're in a legal black spot. So you have no recourse to any law. When I was thinking about that idea of statelessness, it reminded me of Shamina Baker. There's thousands of these people maybe hundreds of thousands of people all around the world have, with no recourse to their state if we're a country about of laws and rules and it may, kind of makes a mockery for that so did in this current period does the west still have that moral high ground that they've always kind of acted upon like we we are a nation of laws all the kind of orientist discourse we spoke about mm. has that been not destroyed but has that been kind of has that edifice of that been kind of chipped away at given What's happened just now? Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of that that story is under pressure. Let's put it like that. Yeah, and like you know, the way power always works is a mixture of you know, as Gramsci says, it's a mixture of coercion and consent. Like you can't, you, you don't, you don't just subjugate people with violence. You also you have to convince a degree, you know, the strata of the population that you're living in the best of all possible worlds, and give them some benefits too and material benefits and like that mixture of coercion and consent and like analyzing power structures i think is all about that and the 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 consent part the bit where people buy into the system and say yeah the system is good the system is the best of all possible worlds i don't want to challenge it i'm going to go along with it part of that is that whole story we have about the nature of and what gets what gets conflated here the nature of Britain versus the nature of the power of the British state. And what we're, I know we're really, really talking about foreign policy, you talk about we did this and we did that, and it wasn't us, it was the British state. Right? The way that these two get bound up together and the way history is used as a kind of, if we have a narrative about Britain that tells us that Britain is, is good, is great, has these great values, did all these heroic things in history, then people have a more benign view of what the British state does in, in, in the modern day. And these things get conflated. Now, that story is harder and harder to sustain when people can see the evidence in front of their eyes. And I think what 
what the 9-11 era did, what the last 20 years have done, is provide for anyone who wants to see it and, and is capable of recognising it or willing to recognise it, an object lesson in what Western power is actually like. Now, there's people, I think, in the elite who will never see this stuff because they are so dogmatic, they're so indo indoctrinated, they've internalised this whole you know, thing. Like the people in the, in, in, in the foreign policy elite, people, a lot of people in academia, unfortunately, people in Fleet Street, people in Westminster, who will still talk about the benign role of the West, even after Abu Ghraib, even after the, you know, all, all these crimes that have been committed in the past 20 years. But I think for ordinary people out there in the world, especially younger generations coming through, who've seen the West do all this stuff, I, th I think these stories are, they're less and less believable, you know, and that feeds into a wider thing in terms of, I think that feeds into what's been happening since Black Lives, since Black Lives Matter uprising last year, in particular, we were having these conversations before, but I think they really put rocket boosters under them, this whole question of our history and re-examining it, you know, not just yeah pulling down statues and stuff like that, but, but that, that is part of a wider critical look at our history. The, the, the big stories, the big meta-narratives that win consent for British power and for the status quo are coming under these attacks. People's view of what happened in the war on terror, people's view of, you know, our history um, and how our history shapes the present. We're not just toppling statues for the sake of it because we, we, we you know, toppling that statue of Colston, for example, because we know that that view of history is one that leads directly to violence on the streets, to police violence and, and stuff like that. So I think if you're in the elite, you're seeing these, these, these stories coming under attack. And what you'll find in, the, in that elite, amongst opinion forms, amongst conservative academics, is fear. They are worried about it, this whole cancel culture thing. It's their defensive kind of tantrum against people saying, we don't like your stories, your stories are wrong. You know, they're factually incorrect. Well, we want more we actually want more history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But that kind of pressure on the kind of national ed edifice, right? Mm because we've spent so long in being invested in oriental and racialized discourses over centuries, mm. by removing that, we look very close to the people that we used to look down upon. Mm. And so that doesn't really make sense if you're trying to have power. So I, I get the pushback because I can't be the same as you because I spent so long demonizing you. Mm. And, and taking from you. And take, but also I'm the reverse image of you. I'm your mirror image. Yeah. Whereas this, the kind of the movement to decolonization is holding the mirror up to ourselves, right? And you can see what's wrong. Yeah. And I think that's one of the issues right now, to seeing what we see. We don't really like what we're seeing. Yeah. yeah. And rightly so. But I guess I, I, I totally agree with your analysis there, David, and I also agree with yours, T, um, obviously. But one of the things that I think that I'm probably most nervous about is people having all the elite whatever, the people that have been in power for a long time that have told us these stories that, that are now saying, oh, I'm being cancelled even though I hold like a professorship at an elite university yeah. and whatever. Yeah. Um, these people, they're now saying, okay, if you think that of me, um, I'm just going to reinforce a eugenicist and, and racist ordering. What I mean by that is, okay, yeah, we did that, but that's because we're better than you. That's because you're inherently that's because you're inherently backwards or you're you're inherently not capable of um, producing an empire. Now, I don't think that's necessarily 
a profound thing to say, but I feel like we're going to get to an era where they're going to double down and wear their, as Steve Bannon said, wear their racist, wear their racist badge of honour. That's where I see like there's less. It's almost like they say to us, like, we don't want to debate. And it's like, no, we do want to debate. You don't want to debate. And now they don't want to debate so much. They're going back to very, very old school but racism. I don't see them having any other alternative strategy. That's the best strategy. Give up, give up. I would say to you, fuck you. We don't care. We don't like you. Yeah, that's what they're saying. We don't, we don't like, like you. We just don't like you. We don't like you. But, but, we don't want you in our, we don't want you in our areas. But, 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 but politically, you can see how that strategy's worked in different countries, right? So mm-hmm. you can go from Hungary to China to some extent, they tell the, tell their population there's a group of people we just don't like. Mm. And people will buy that stuff up. So it's a strategy that works and it's been worked around the world. So I, when when Steve Batten said, where's your racism? It works. I'm not going to debate you. I don't like you anymore. Leave mm. my country. Or stop being so ungrateful. Yeah. Stop being so ungrateful. Like that type of thing. So I do, I definitely agree that we are seeing this, as we've said on the show before, what Gary Young said about the pollination post Black Lives Matter. But the pushback is vicious. Is going to be very. I feel like we're just at the start of it, and it is going to get very, very, very vicious because actually, you, as we've said on the show before, we've learned your epistemologies, we've learned your ways of knowledge production and, and debate and etc. We're using your tools to tell you that actually you've been talking a lot of shit. Now they're saying, yeah, 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 we know, but not today. Listen, listen, just listen. If you're listening out, the British state. It's not me. I don't arrest me. Come and tell everyone else. <laughs> I'm cool. I'm your best friend. I'm your best friend. <laughs> but yeah, I think that they don't need Nigel Farage anymore. They don't need any of these heads anymore. It's embedded. Like, it's so embedded within the the zeitgeist to say, like, all these, all these people of colour complaining, all these working class people complaining. So in that moment of, like, uh, Black Lives Matter in June, yeah. right? So you have this idea of an anti-racism that's putting pressure on this edifice. Do you think that's a true mo- a true moment of hope? Like th- that is something you, we can build upon or is it something that's going to, I don't know, peter out over time? It's, I think it's hope. It's just grounds for hope, <laughs> and there's something. Well, it's no, like, George is getting happy because yeah, George is getting happy because we don't usually have hope on the show, especially at the moment. I'm spoiled, George. George is dying at the moment. It's hope, but like there's there's grounds for optimism. I think in terms of the direction it's going, but it's. It, I think Chantel, you're so right. This this backlash is is bad, and it will get worse because you know we've touched a raw raw nerve. Not so much about, you know, racialised minorities demanding equality. That's bad, but from their point of view. But also, we're taking away your pedestal. We're taking away your delusions about who you are. And they can't stand it. These people cannot stand it. When you look at the leading kind of, you know, academics and commentators who've been at the forefront of this pushback, it has clearly got under their skin in a major way. This is how they identify, this is how they see themselves. I'm part of this history of, you know, this great and noble nation, this great civilization. Um, that's part of my identity, that's part of, part of how I see myself. Don't you dare try and take that away from me. It's a real sort of late middle-aged white guy's tantrum, this whole thing. And that might sound like it's, it's diminishing it. It's not, because these people have so much power and I think you know we're going to get there 
because I think it's a real tectonic structural shift that's taken place. And that Black Lives Matter, you know, that specific uprising last year, obviously that's something that's been going on for much longer, but that specific uprising last year, I think, was, was really important. But it was an expression of a tectonic shift, like a tectonic shift in values and outlooks, particularly from younger generations. That's what I was going to say. Is it do you think going to keep going? Do you, think I think? It's, do you think it's intergenerational, that, that, that tectonic shift? So, yeah, to a large degree. Yeah. So part of it is the kind of middle-aged, older people yeah, who yeah. maintain a certain kind of view of life. And a younger lot that's brought up with, brought up with values, mm. ironically, that were kind of given to us from our older generation, right? Yeah. So the idea of like kind of blindness. And so when they do see... So when young people did see this inequality and they're saying, well, but you told us mm. that we were supposed to be colorblind. You told us about meritocracy and clearly this is not the case of our peer group. Yeah. yeah. So it raises questions on what's been passed down yeah. to that yeah. group. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I also think you've got the combination. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Alana Lenton who talked about this on the show. Um, like if we think about the war on terror and we're just talking about Britain for it just for a second and again well we are been talking about Britain but think about the war on terror like the state sponsored localized version of that in Britain so we're talking about rampant Islamophobia being normalized thinking about class and thinking about neoliberalism as well and thinking about Thatcherism and the legacies of Thatcherism new labor like what you have with well, people that are my age or younger, I think people that are younger than me are much more radical than me. They're definitely my inspiration. But you've got this concoction of inequality, but states structured, violences, neglect that we kind of have never seen before at this level. Like there's so many overlapping issues like you can't get a house. My boss is racist. The prime minister's racist. Like there's so many things that I'm not trying to be presentist here. Obviously these things have been consistent, but there are so many things. I'm now I'm in a global pandemic. Um, there's so many things that um, the young generation now, I'm never, Oh, you're never going to retire by the way either. And you're yeah, you're never going to have secure housing. They've got nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. And it is like, I agree with what you're saying, David, like the elite are malfunctioning. Cause they're like, shit, how are we going to keep, what is all this stuff in place? Because young, they, there's, yeah. they haven't got anything. The strategy is populism. Yeah, and, that's it. But it, it's been an effective strategy, right? Like, I, it, it shocks me how people can put aside the material conditions for nationalism. Like, it, yeah, it, it's mad. And so, obviously, we saw that with 2019, didn't mm, we? I, General election. Like with, with with that, because you know when you when you look at Let's talk about right-wing populism. Mm. Because I think what's problematic about the way that term's used in political science is it just lumps everyone who isn't a neoliberal into the same box. And mm. Bernie Sanders and Trump, are, you know, they're just in the populist sort mm. of, you know, bucket. Like, if we can talk about it, because I think that's what you're referring to, right-wing populism. When you look at who votes for that, like, it's not that many working-class people who vote for it. No, they don't, you know, because we don't vote. Black-class people don't vote, what you yeah. Find is that Trump supporters were concentrated in the higher income brackets, you know. Like when you, and, and this was true in 2016 against Clinton and in 20, uh, last year, 2020, against Biden. The Democrats win amongst the low income groups and the middle income groups. You know, as you get higher up, Trump starts winning. Um, you know, and this, this is a, it's a populism of people who are already quite well off. You know, people as asset rich, retirees, high income people. 
and you know it's not like it's not like misdirecting their economic concerns because a lot of these people don't have any economic concerns you know not ones like others it's it's rallying their anxiety about a world that's changing you know their anxiety is about you know suddenly people are treating trans people like human beings suddenly people are sort of more open about you know um LGBT rights. Suddenly, suddenly people are you know the battle for racial justice is making advances. Advances, fucking hate that stuff. Mm -hmm. That's not that's not the world they want to live in. There's a hierarchy where they sit at the top, and that's got material advantages. Material advantages, advantages in terms of your sense of well-being and sense of not sense of well-being, your sense of self, your sense of status. It's nice to be at the top of a pyramid, I'm sure. You know. No, definitely. And, and I think that's that's what's being, you know, that whole sort of mail reading, telegraph reading, you know, <laughs> Kent dwelling. Oh, it's my guy. Sure. David, we can't believe we haven't spoken about Kent. Like, it's, it's, it's come up a few times yeah. on the reflection, David. It's my the seven circles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, I think you're exactly right, Dave, and it's reminded me of a conversation we had last week with Danny Dorlin, who was saying, look, when you have groups that have loads of stuff economically, it makes them behave in individualistic ways, and it also makes them very unhappy as a people, which means yeah. they're more likely to treat marginalised people badly. Yeah. Like, yeah. that, it, it, how the hell we get out of this? I don't want to say that working class people don't... Like, there's no working class people that vote for those, you know, movements. But mm -hmm. it's, it's it's interesting how it breaks down that it's actually more of a, a backlash of the, of, the, of, the, of the affluent white mm -hmm. than it is of anything else. Even with Brexit, you know, like, mm -hmm. the biggest predictor of a Brexit vote was social attitudes, not social class. You know, it's whether you were an authoritarian, whether you were a racist, whether you were misogynist. I think it was an LSE study. It was more likely that you were more likely to be concerned with non-EU immigration than you were EU immigration. And then people who'd accept a loss of their, an economic loss if it meant having less migrants. That but was a big giveaway. It's interesting how the kind of the sociologist stands to, sticks out to me, given this kind of this idea of accumulation, is favour. The Berberian notion of like, like the Protestant work ethic, this kind of exceptionalism of the West, yeah. and it's the, the idea of linking material progress, and it just becomes accumulation for accumulation's sake. And like, I don't want you to take my stuff. That's that's the anxiety that kind of comes out through like his work. I think. In terms of David, I'm going to ask you to predict the future. In terms of Britain's relationship with the Middle East, what do you see the next five years looking like? Um, I think the age of direct intervention. Is, it's hard to break out of their language, isn't it? Mm. Like rendition is torture, and sorry, sorry, rendition is kidnapping. Mm. Like torture, they called it. Um, they called it enhanced interrogation techniques. Mm. <laughs> this is how you kid yourself Kidnapp that you're not doing oh, what you're actually doing. God, right? so and intervention that sounds like mm. it's what you do when your friends having a hard time or something like that, isn't it? But like it, it's not as invasion and conquest. Yeah, sorry, I said intervention. What I mean is that what it actually is, invasion and conquest. I think that, they've learned at least for now, that that's something that looks easy and is actually really hard. We've got all these, you know, we, we, we've got multi-billion dollar military budgets and we're faced with people with Kalashnikovs and, and small arms. Surely we can beat them. Oh no, it turns out we can't. So I think, you know, those kind of military adventures and that kind of hubris has been dealt a blow. And so you're going to be moving to forms of 
it's called remote warfare, like the use of drones, use of certain allies on the ground who are often going to be horrible people. So, like the exertion, there's still going to be an exertion of Western violence in the region, but it's going to be done by proxy. It was the same after Vietnam. All these proxy wars in Central America were, you know, if if, if Vietnam had gone well, the US probably would have invaded places like Nicaragua during the eighties. But instead, they got their proxies to do it, and their proxies were, you know, terrorists effectively. So you can see Western violence in in those regions, which will, those regions will continue to be important because of the oil. Because um, of the oil. Because of the oil. Because oil is the lifeblood of the world economy. Mm-hmm. You know. And what was the other thing you were talking about being important? You know? Oh, um, for, for batteries, lithium batteries now. Right, right. So you have, like, the scrap, again, a kind of scramble for Africa. So, like, places like Mauritania, who contains, like, 80% of the world's cobalt, mm-hmm. it goes into lithium batteries because the ramping up production of electric cars. Right. So the shift from petrol to electric again it's about resources yeah who yeah, can get yeah. all the resources and so this is part of one of the reasons why china has spent so long building up its uh the silk re reinvigorating the silk road because they've have they've got the key points yeah. on there and for the west especially australia at the moment australia's the most vocal one about this yeah. they control too much of these resources so i think this is one of the aspects of politics international affairs that people don't see unless you really get into it and then you start realizing all these commodities are really important to how the world functions it's so depressing um, <laughs> just just to say that briefly things we've been we've been talking about the middle east a lot in the, re- the, the, the reason the middle east is strategically significant for the big powers is, is the oil but half the world's proven oil reserves are in the middle east a huge chunk of the world's proven gas reserves are in the middle east Oil's the lifeblood of the world economy. It's not just about energy, it's about all sorts of things. Oils, Oil can be used to make you know, plastics, synthetic fibres, fertilisers, petrochemicals. So, like, you know, it, it's, it's inherent to the way modern civilization, <laughs> if we can call it that, the way it functions. And so whoever controls the oil, either directly or by proxy through their allies, has power in the world system like if you're an imperial power interested in dominating the global system which america is you want to be projecting your power into that part of the world and if you're say china and you're dependent on middle eastern oil which the chinese are for the time being then that's going to be of concern to you because your big global superpower rival is sitting on the, the resources that you desperately need access to so basically that's what's that's what's at stake in the middle east and all this contestation around the middle east and who controls it when you get down to it it's about that it's about who has that presence in the energy heartlands of the planet. So hopefully that, you know, that helps clarify things for, for listeners. Well, also it's like um, when you're looking at China's actions in the South Pacific Sea, so who can guarantee oil tankers going across the oceans? Yeah, 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 yeah. So the Chinese strategy of, the, of being uh, the string of six pearls to try and to kind of hold the South Pacific region, mm. it has the ability to do that. And so this is why that, that current, the, is it AUK, US, whatever it is, or... Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the, yeah. the White Alliance. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> this is why it's so. At the moment, it's Anglo Saxon Alliance. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, Anglo Saxon Alliance. Sorry. They would have just called it that yeah. 70 years ago. They would have just called it something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you just shrouded it in. Say it with your chest. Just call it that. Like, I don't know. What <laughs> but, but that's about that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's about, about that. Contestation. Contestation, yeah. Made. Because, yeah. Like, like I said, so the Middle East, given the, the shift in mainstream politics with going green and climate change, there's, there's a pressure on from above to move from petrol to electric. And it plays well with the, the with the Western electorate, right? That you're they're doing their bit, yeah. but 
to get those resources, China has acquired what well, I think may, at the 54 states in Africa, I think 50 of them have signed deals with China. Yeah. So those resources in Africa are Chinese. So the next area, the only area that's left is the Middle East. To, to return to Chantel's question, and I think it ties in with what you're just saying. War and terror have began at a time when the US was just dominant in a way that no power has ever been in history. Just bestrode the globe with no serious rival at all. Soviet Union had collapsed. There was no other big power. And the US thought it could do it, it want, do it, it wanted. 20 years later, I think we're not in a world of the US and China as equals. Absolutely not. The US power far, far, far outstrips China's Chinese power. And that's just to be clear, David, is that because, can you just, why is that? Because, um, God, loads of reasons. I mean, because you've got loads of the military bases and stuff. Number one, yes, the US military power is just, think about the amount of money that the US spends on its military versus the money the Chinese spend. Is it the, the Chinese military spending is a fraction of the US. Then think about the accumulated effect of the US spending over decades more than the Chinese do. So quantitatively and qualitatively, they're in a much more powerful place. They've got bases everywhere, the US. They've got, mili they've got military alliances everywhere. They've got countries whose militaries are effectively supplied by the American arms industry and, and they need to stay tied to the Americans to keep their militaries functioning in terms of providing the spare parts and components and the maintenance and all the rest of it. So the US has this network of military power which just dwarfs anything the Chinese have got. And that gets that's before you get to the power of American corporations, the power of the American uh, financial institutions, all the alliances, the diplomatic alliances the Americans have got. So it's a big imbalance, but Chinese power is growing, you know, and that's going to continue to be the case. And in terms of the Middle East, that competition for that still strategically important part of the world, that's going to continue too. So the Middle East will continue. The Middle East has its own internal problems as well. These regimes aren't delivering for their people. So there could be unrest in terms of the, at the domestic level within these different countries, unrest at the regional level in terms of countries like Syria, uh, Saudi and Iran having their rivalry, and then unrest at the international level with the Chinese and the Americans competing over the Middle East. And in terms of Britain's role, Britain will just be hanging on the coattails of the Americans and trying to prove their worth to the Americans, yeah. even post-Brexit, which means Pathetic. accentuating the military. Sometimes people overestimate, over-state kind of the Chinese case mm. and to show America's power look what it did to Huawei mm. like it obliterated them just by just say what Huawei is um, a te a telecoms company yeah. effectively and so America placed them on their entity list blacklisted them so they can't have uh, access to American corporations and parts so the company effectively has gone from number one well number one in 2019 to number six right. overnight on on the accusation of saying that they could be colluding with the government. No proof was ever pre presented. It was just done. So it shows you the power of America. They don't have to do much, right? Yeah. So, I mean, this, this rivalry will shape international relations, you know, going forward. And obviously that's going to be shaped. That's going to be framed in racial terms or, or subtly racialized terms as well. You know, and us as the democracies, them as the authoritarians, we've got to stand up for our democratic values against their authoritarian values. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's how it's going to unfold, I think. Yeah. Oh, listeners, 
I don't know. Are we ending on Sorry, a that wasn't are we ending really, on a hope note? I love all that shit, man. No, I know, I know you do. <laughs> no, I really like. I, I love all that. <laughs> it is though, as listeners will know, over the last four years has is a very keen eye for Chinese <laughs> politics, international relations. I, I, like I said, I just think it's interesting the kind of relationship expert. David, any hope for the <laughs> listeners before we before we wrap up? In terms of Britain's role in the Middle East hope in a couple of senses one that we're no longer going to be britain's no longer going to be invading the region in the way that it did in turn you know these military adventures are no longer going to be taking place in the same way as they have that's good because they were really damaging iraq was a really damaging thing um i hope in the sense that i think what we saw in the early two in the early 2010s when populations rose up against their regimes that's gonna, that's gonna come back. It's already coming back in places like Algeria, Sudan. There's gonna be more of that because the, the underlying reasons for those uprisings, those pro-democracy uprisings, are, are all still there, you know. And and people are determined to take their countries back from these horrible rulers that the West has often imposed on them. So you know that that region is not in a great place <laughs> to, to to say the least. But you you, you can't write off the people there. And if the West is weaker there, that's got to be good for them because it's often been the West that's imposed those regimes on them. That's that's. I'll take that hope. I'll take it. I'll take that, <laughs> David. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us on this reflection series two journey. It's been really good. Maybe we'll bring it back for twenty twenty two. What do you think, T? Yeah, next year will be interesting because you have the twenty twenty two mid midterms in America. So. Oh God. Yes. <laughs> to be fair I do I do love I do love electoral <laughs> politics I can't lie to you guys anyway thank you so much for joining us and David thank you so much for coming in the studio thank today you. with us thank you David thank um, you. and we'll see you next week see you next week bye bye thank you for listening to the T's and C's with T's and Chantel you can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram